Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Well, we are following a major breaking news story in the world of politics, and really, for that matter, just in the landscape of Georgia uh, itself, uh, with the announcement this morning, the somewhat surprising announcement, that Johnny Isaacson had decided he would not uh, remain in the Senate through the end of his term, which would end in 2023, actually, uh, the seat up for re-election in 2022. And I have I couldn't ask for a better panel to be here to talk about this. Uh, Jackie Gingrich Cushman is here today. She, of course, is a conservative uh, columnist writer who I again, I always say this. I get to you at Jackie Cushman dot com, but I can also do it by going to. So, yes, um, uh, I'm also on Town Hall. Town Hall. Um, Boston Herald's not picking me up. I'm, a, I'm across the nation. I'm going to work on the AJC a little bit while we're here today. Oh, good. I'm going to yeah. barricade the door and not let Kevin out, actually. Uh, and <laughs> and as part of your ongoing shameless promotion, <laughs> you have brought in with you an, a copy of your new book, Our Broken America, which is going to be published September 17th, 18th, something like that. Yes. So Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Should Stop Ranting and Start Listening. Mm-hmm. I know it's shocking to think about. Um, comes out September 17th, the publisher is Center Street. I'm really excited about this book. I did a lot of research, um, and I'm really looking forward to the launch. And you and I have already scheduled a date that we're going to record a show about it and air it. We don't have a date yet, but sometime after the 17th, because your publisher is saying, hold on. I imagine that means you're going on some big show right after the <laughs> well, 17th. None, none, none bigger than yours, but I do want you to know, <laughs> speaking of shameless plugging, I actually, oh. I don't know if you've oh. seen it yet, I actually thank you and reference wow. this show, because I really believe that this show, really? the for, I do, <gasps> the format of this show I think is so different well, than what we see on, on the networks and other places, that this show has really inspired me and was part of why I, I wrote this book. I, well, thank you. That's of really, course. I really appreciate that. That's really wonderful. Now we'll definitely do a show with you. <laughs> Ferry Johnson is here. He is the uh, principal, he's the founder, and he is a star of Paramount Consulting, his uh, 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 consulting firm that does government relations. Political consulting, although, to the best of my knowledge, you still haven't got a candidate that you're beginning work on for the 2020 cycle, but I imagine you're out there thinking about it, right? Not yet. Okay. But definitely, my phone is open. Uh, the other thing I want to <laughs> mention is two things, really. Uh, people can watch you on The Georgia Gang on Sunday mornings at 8.30. You're a regular on that show, which Lori Geary now hosts. Um But you've also, you're in a very elite group of people. You've been chosen as one of only a handful of consultants who are now, tell me how I describe this, the the work you're going to do to help the National Democratic Party uh, craft the way the the presidential uh, candidate will move forward. Tell me about what that means. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Bill. Um, Just basically two handfuls of us, maybe less than a dozen, uh, right around a dozen of us have been chosen. Um, many of us who are former Obama campaign alumni, some Hillary Clinton alumni folks, some folks who work for Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden. But we're basically coming together to create sort of the platform and what we think the Democratic nominee for president is going to need in order to be victorious. And so we're looking at things like different pathways to 270 electoral votes, states that Barack Obama won in 2008-2012 that Hillary Clinton lost. And so it's really an elite group of people uh, from all over the country. And we're, you know, we're meeting and talking pretty much now every week, but I'm just really honored to be a part well, of this. Well, congratulations on you. being recognized for the work you do for your thinking as a consultant. Kevin Riley is back with us. Kevin, you haven't been here for a couple of weeks. You've been, uh, your other job over there at the AJC, the editor of the AJC has been keeping you pretty busy, but I'm sure glad you're back today. It's great to be back, and I sure picked the right day, yeah. didn't I? And yeah. so I think, uh, I don't need a long introduction. Let's get into this. We've got right. a lot of news. So, yeah. Okay, so let's do that. Um, I have to acknowledge that when when the news broke this morning, and we were all taken aback by it, everybody knew that Johnny's health was deteriorating a bit, and we, you know, wondered if he was going to run for re-election in 2022, although his people kept insisting he would. 
I do think we were surprised that he decided that he would resign at the end of of 2019. But I have to acknowledge my first reaction was not as a journalist, an observer of politics. It was like uh, some of you at this table, Jack. I've known Johnny Isaacson and followed his career and covered it for 35 years. And whatever you may think of his politics, Jackie, um, whether you think he's too conservative or whether he's not conservative enough, he has always been a kind and uh, gentlemanly uh, practitioner of the art of politics. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Johnny is well-respected on both sides of the aisle. I had the opportunity to meet with him not long ago about the Trust for Public Land, which I work work with. Um, And he's been a big supporter of the Trust for Public Land. And, in fact, he was our conservation chair um, chair person a few years ago. But he is. He always listens. He's always thoughtful. Um, he may not agree with you, but he listens anyway, which is, quite frankly, what I'm trying to promote in my book, that we don't always have to agree with one another, but we need to do it in a way that is respectful and respects the dignity of the other person. And that's always what Senator Isaacson did. Kevin, uh, I, I know you don't micromanage the day-to-day in and out of the newspaper, but what are we gonna see? what's that front page of tomorrow's AJC going to well, look like? Well, we're working on it, yeah, and uh, work, working on several things. And one thing I think it's important not to lose sight of is this is a man who, because of a you know, a disease that we're still trying to figure out how to combat has 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 been forced out, forced to leave his job at a moment when he's at the peak of his abilities. So um, no matter what you think of him, and I personally think a lot of Senator Isaacson, he has always been accessible to us. He is always available, whether the story is a tough one or not. And since my arrival here, he has been always willing to spend time with me to help me understand better what he believes Georgia's priority yeah, should Theron, be. Theron, it's, it's sometimes been frustrating for Democrats, but Johnny Isaacson's the Republican that Democrats in Georgia have felt comfortable voting for for a long time in many cases. Absolutely. I mean, his pathway to many victories have been not just relying on the Republican Party vote uh, in this state, but he, quite frankly, appeals to a great deal of moderate voters, which happen to be uh, Democrats. But, you know, I agree with Kevin and Jackie. I mean, he epitomizes what the true meaning of a public servant should be. Uh, he has been a champion for conservative values in the Senate and in the Congress for many, many decades. And I think the thing that I admire the most about Senator Isaacson, even through this time in Washington where he has publicly and courageously come out and embodied those conservative values and spoke out against President Trump, and, and many of whom in the party probably did not always agree with what he was saying, as Jackie just said. But he did it in such a very respectful and sensible way. And so I don't want to talk about him as if he's died. Yeah, but he's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's going to have he, he's a gonna, full he, he's life gonna, and in some form of public right, service. Right. And he's going to be, I think, even more vocal for the remaining yeah. of this year. And so, again, you know, take partisanship out of it. Um, I think anyone who comes along after him once he's retired um, is going to have really big shoes to fill. You know, uh, that's really wonderful. I'm glad you point that out. Uh, Johnny is struggling with Parkinson's uh, disease, but he's already said in his statement uh, that he that he's not getting out of uh, of completely out of of public life in the sense that we know he'll find something that uh, will engage him. Um, But uh, I wonder, Jackie. He has been about as outspoken as a Southern Republican in the Congress can be when he's disagreed with President Trump. And although I know the disease has been debilitating, I can't help but wonder if at a certain point he also hasn't said enough of this. I mean, I'm I'm dealing with this. I've I've had it with what the atmosphere that that I can no longer go along with in Washington. That's pure speculation, obviously. Well, I- yeah, I mean, knowing Johnny, I'm, I'm, I mean, Senator Isaacson's such a fighter in terms of his spirit and his beliefs. I don't think that's it with him. I really don't. Okay. I think I think this was. I mean, his statement was pretty clear. I think it was very hard for him. He is. He. I think Theron was exactly right. He has the heart of a public servant. He loves serving his his state and his country. I think it was a very hard decision for him. And I think, quite frankly, he would prefer to stay there and be that opposite that that voice saying that we shouldn't say things that way um, than he would to to really step back. But I think he's doing this because. He thinks it's the best time for him and for the state, but I'm sure we'll get into it. But it does put a lot of things into play oh, in terms of what's happening unbelievable. next. Let me just read from his statement, which was issued this morning. I am leaving a job I love because my health challenges are taking their toll on me, my family and my staff. 
My Parkinson's has been progressing. I'm continuing physical therapy to recover from a fall in July. And he goes on talking about his health problems. But then he says, in my 40 years in elected office, I've always put my constituents in my state of Georgia first. With the mounting health challenges I'm facing, I've concluded I will not be able to do the job over the long term in the manner uh, the citizens of Georgia deserves. It goes against every fiber, here speaking to your Mm -hmm. point, Jackie, it goes against every fiber of my being to leave in the middle of my Senate term, but I know it's the right thing to do on behalf of the state. Yeah, it's a powerful statement from someone who uh, I'm sure never planned to do this, and somehow, you know, maybe the disease has come on stronger than than people thought. Maybe uh, other things have taken a toll, but... Uh, you got to believe that he did not want to do yeah, this. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. Um, all right. So, Theron, let's talk about the political implications here. <laughs> yeah. We've got David. Okay, and let me set this up, please. And, and then I want to get everybody engaged because it's fascinating conversation. Um, Governor Kemp has announced that there will be, he will appoint temporarily someone to fill Isaacson's seat after the end of 2019. He is then calling what becomes a special election simply because uh, Isaacson's term doesn't end till 2022. That special election for his seat, though, will be held on the general election day in November of next year. So we will be voting in November for the David Perdue Senate seat, which is already in full play, and then this open seat. And it will be a what we call a uh, a jungle election, which means he won't run as a Democrat. Democrats and Republicans will all run on the same ballot. And if uh, if the two top vote getters, if nobody gets over 50 percent, there'll be a runoff. Got that right so far, Theron? Yeah, well, it is important to point out it's the presidential election. Yeah, too. I was going to say. Oh, that. yeah, yeah. 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 Well, absolutely. <laughs> to, add, right. to add to that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so what? So you, you did a great job, Bill, of kind of setting the, um, the the playing field here. So now, what Governor Kemp has got to decide: Am I going to uh, appoint a man or a woman uh, to fulfill this seat once Senator Isaacson? Um, retires, and will this person be the person who he picks? And if it, how you know much does electability come into part as the person who's going to run? So that's the first decision that the governor's got to make. And I got to believe, Bill, that not only will Senator Isaacson, I think, play a pivotal role in picking who this person is going to be. I think if you're Senator David Perdue, you're now running alongside someone on the Republican ticket that you hope will either help you boost your Republican turnout and in the middle, or it's not someone that, you know, maybe is totally not aligned with your sort of strategy to get reelected. What has just happened in Georgia is now you have the Democrats and the Republicans kind of running as a ticket. Yeah. And, and so I think now um, from the Republican side, that's enough on the Democratic side. I mean, Laura, we can be here all day talking about this. I mean, I know that. <laughs> Move over, Terry. But Gross. before you go on to the Democrats, Aaron, just to be clear, Kemp could decide to just put a placeholder person in there, right, who would not run later. I mean, that's an option. Absolutely. And and, and that may be something where he can bring back someone um, who can just be there for, you know, a a moment to carry out the success uh, of Senator Isaacson's term. Or he could put Jackie Gingrich Cushman uh, in the seat. Wait a minute. Are we breaking news on the show? I mean, he could he could he could appoint Jackie to go to Washington. She knows she she knows where the bathrooms are. She's got a good rapport with Brian Kemp. We know that they are close in some ways. And and the reason I say that, that's a good point, Kevin. Um, We know that the Republicans um, are in need of more women candidates, right? More women statewide candidates. And so this may be an opportunity for the governor to, who seems to keep kind of be moving a little towards the middle to report a woman um, as the U.S. senator from, from the you state You know, he really, well, go ahead, and then I want to get, get weigh in on all this, but go ahead, Jack. So, so thank you, Theron. And um, <laughs> so I, th- I do think it's important. He, there's a lot of considerations, and I'm sure everyone is calling to weighing in on his decision, right? <laughs> right. I mean, so we, we know how this goes. Everybody, 
they're either calling to you know to promote themselves or their best friend or the person down the street or quite frankly I mean President Trump and his reelection campaign yeah. are going to care about who is in this seat. Uh, I don't think the strategy of putting a placeholder quite frankly makes sense in this environment because you want to have someone serving because whoever is the senator right is the senator is whoever, an incumbent absolutely they're they're the senator and they're 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 in D.C. and they're casting votes and they're they're talking about things they're meeting people so. Whoever he appoints needs to be ready and willing to run full out. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, for the Republican side, not, I agree. not, not for Democrats. And, and, and but if for you look at this, this governor's track record on some of his judicial appointments, uh, I've been told, and I think he's been pretty public about this amongst his friends, is that electability was paramount in his decision making. Because the worst thing you want to do, to Jackie's point, is appoint someone here to go up to Washington because that person now will have a record and they will embody a good record of votes from. Johnny Isaacson, but now this person will have their own votes. And so then they run as the incumbent. But we never know. Georgia could be uh, experiencing a wave. This could be a change election. You know, we've seen how change elections have benefited Republicans and Democrats. And so this person uh, who is selected, he or she have got to think about what type of votes, what type of, you know, moderate or conservative Republican I want to be in Washington. And I think you also have to look at, we mentioned this earlier before the show, we we couldn't wait to talk about this topic, but you have to look at the whole range of what's happening. You have to look at the fact that you have elections not only on the Georgia legislature, which are very important in terms of redistricting. You've got elections uh, for both senators. You've got Trump's re-election campaign. You have congressional districts in play. We have several that are going to be very, very competitive. So I think if you if you pull back and step and look at the entire fabric of what Georgia will look like um, next fall, it could be very complicated. Um, there'll be lots of overlapping pieces, and I think um, I know that that Governor Kemp will be very strategic in thinking about how does this appointment fit into that, and how does it make sense for the Republican Party well, well, in terms Kevin, of running. Well, I have this question then, since you point that out, Jack. I mean, uh, I asked this somewhat facetiously: Will there be enough TV time to buy with all these elections? <laughs> and what I mean by that is, like, the, how do the Republicans, for example, prioritize which race? I mean, and and who gets to decide where the money will be? Is it more important to reelect David Perdue or more important to win this seat or both? That's a re- all right. Let's let's table that just for a second. But I think that's a great question because here's what I want to talk about first because because Jackie and Theron have both hinted at it. We've already. It's interesting that Theron and Jackie, when we walked into the studio, both said they really that it would be helpful if if Brian Kemp looked for a woman. A woman Republican, perhaps. Actually, actually, I did not say that. Th- right. Thank you for the, the, the reporter, the reporter and Kevin, right? <laughs> Th- Theron said that. Oh, I thought you would um, agree. No, and, right. I, and I actually, right. what, I, what, I, what I do agree with is that, again, looking at the whole of Republicans, I think it, I think it would be more helpful to Republicans in general if all the candidates, quite frankly, if, if there is some diversity in the okay. candidates. Okay, so given that, Kevin, what's interesting outside of this studio is the names that have already started being thrown around are all men. Some people are saying Doug Collins. I don't see Doug Collins. I would think that there will be an uproar. He's playing an important role in the as the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, and I think the Trump administration would like to see him right there <laughs> holding the line against Gerald Nadler and everything he's doing. We're talking about Chris Carr, all the, the attorney general. There are all these male names being circulated, Kevin. Interesting. Right. I mean, that's why I, I keep pushing on the question, because if if you had to pick a woman and you did, I mean, and, and uh, that could be a very smart political decision to say, we're going to we got David Perdue. We have got to have a woman. Jackie, I, I who do you pick? And I, you can't I, I pick mean, yourself. No, I mean, I don't think you have to pick a woman. I, 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 but quite what frankly, if you made that I, I don't like that language, because I think I think I, I think it gets very close to being very um, identity politics, and that's not more about. I think we have to look okay. at qualifications, right. and we got, but we also have to look at electability and appeal. I mean, I think you have to look at both. Um, so, what I think you could look at, you could look at Karen Handel. She's already running. My guess is you leave her in the sixth district to run for that seat again, but she's a possibility. Um, Renee Edmonds, you could look at her. She could run. If you want to be very polarizing, which I would not recommend at all, you could look at Carolyn Meadows, right? Um, so, <laughs> Carolyn Meadows. There, yeah, I'm just saying there, there are lots of options. Chairman but, of the NRA, is, is, longtime <laughs> Georgia Republican. What? Party. Uh, well, Karen, yeah, Karen Handel has been elected statewide. I mean, yeah. right? right. She has been elected statewide. Right. So she's. So my question is back to Bill's question 
about the names being floated is who floats these names. I think that those are like whoever thinks of them at, who's currently writing the article. So I don't know why if they're just thinking Republican must be, you know, a certain stereotype and they're not looking outside the box. But I think we need to, as um, a, a party, kind of look outside the box and see what's right. out there. Let's frame this in an even larger way, Theron. What happened? What is happening in Georgia in this unique circumstance, this remarkable circumstance where you have you're going to have two open U.S. Senate seats in 2020 is that we've already known that Democrats have are hopeful. They know it's an outside chance. They're thinking, is it possible for us to take control of of the U.S. Senate? Suddenly, with two seats in play, Theron, I mean, Georgia was already going to be an important state. It is now going to be perhaps ground zero for everything being done with congressional elections next year. Absolutely. I mean, we are now, I believe, not only just one of the many battleground states. I think think Georgia definitely becomes the top battleground state in the South. And I definitely think that we're one of the biggest battleground states on the pathway to 270 electoral votes. The one thing we haven't talked about real quick, Bill, is, and you mentioned this earlier, so I don't want to take total credit for it. <laughs> That's all but right. <laughs> if, if this election for the re- retired seat of Johnny Isaacson goes to a runoff and Democrats are one seat away from holding on or maybe, re- you know, getting control in the U.S. Senate, I mean, you're talking about chaos. I mean, my old football coach, Billy Henderson, who was football coach for Governor Kent, would say, buckle your chin straps, you know. And so Georgia better buckle their chin straps because AJC and all these other media outlets are going to become billionaires yeah. because they're going to be so much, uh, so many ads. But but back to the women, uh, woman thing really quickly. My suggestion of, of Governor Kemp that need to suggest appointing a woman was solely because we know that it's been documented, and I think Jackie would agree with this, is that the the challenge that the Republican Party has in electoral politics is figuring out how they can retain and gain more Republican suburban women. We know that the studies show that there's been a decline amongst Republican disaffected women in suburban areas yep. in Georgia who I think are going away from the Republican Party, partly because of some of the stuff that we're coming from the president. But I do think that Georgia now is going to be, it's just inundated with um, visits from presidential candidates. I think if you're sitting on a presidential campaign right now and you're in the top five, Georgia has just become a part of your mathematical equation Absolutely. to not only try to get through the primary, but if you go on to be the nominee, you leave resources here because it now becomes the new North Carolina, the new Florida, the new Virginia, as far as southern states that can actually help you become uh, president. Here's, let me just expand upon something that, that you just said, Theron. So, Kevin, your, your reporter, Greg Bluestein, has already put together the pieces of what the election schedule is going to look like. If there is a runoff in that open seat, the, the Isaacson open seat, it will not be held until January 5th. By then, virtually every other United States Senate race will have most certainly been decided. And so as Theron says, if there's a one-person difference in the balance of the Senate, the entire country is going to be descending on Georgia to see who on January 5th tips the balance of the United States Senate. That that may very well not happen, but it is one of the scenarios that could play out. It could be bigger than if the Bulldogs are in the national championship game. <laughs> Hard to imagine. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, it could happen. I mean, this is a really, I think it's, um, there are so many interlocking pieces um, what I do know is that someone has probably bought up all the airtime already, and they're going to broker it to the highest bidder, right? So Bobby someone... <laughs> Kahn. Bobby Kahn has already secured all that time. One of the best time buyers the Democrats have ever had. Exactly. So he's going to secure that. He's going to dole it out to the highest bidder. Um, but we also know that this is, you know, that it's not just airtime anymore. It's about social media. It's about grassroots. And I've got to give it to the, I mean, I say this every time. The Democrats do such a better job than the Republicans have done historically in getting the grassroots organized and motivated. And I think that's going to be one of the things Republicans have to look at is how do we compete everywhere? All right. I, we're going to have to take a break. And then I want to tell you, um, Sarah Riggs Amico, who just yesterday announced her candidacy, formally announced, she'd already uh, uh, formed an exploratory committee. Um, she's here uh, today 
and and the reason she kind of got into the middle of this mix because we have had all the Democratic candidates for Senate. By that I mean Teresa Tomlinson and then Ted Terry have appeared on this show to do a, a, a shorter segment in which we've uh, talked with them about their candidacies. So she was already scheduled to be here today. And we're going to bring her in and we're going to have a few minutes with her. And one of the questions, Kevin, that I think we're going to ask is the one that we've all been talking about off the air, which is if you had a choice as a Democratic candidate, would you rather run, continue to run or to run against David Perdue? Or do you want to run for that open seat? We're going to see what Sarah Riggs Amico says and then talk about it among ourselves. So let's get a break and we'll be right back with uh, Sarah Riggs Amico and this great panel. Join us for GPB's gala event in the Fox Theater's Egyptian Ballroom on Saturday night, September 7th. The evening starts with a meet-and-greet cocktail reception with music legend Brenda Lee, followed by a three-course dinner and dancing with live music. We'll celebrate Brenda Lee's accomplishments in the world of entertainment as she's presented with the first GPB Georgia Legend Award. Go to gpb.org slash Brenda Lee to get your tickets before time runs out. 64 years after Emmett Till was murdered, telling the story of his lynching remains fraught in Mississippi. The issue of race is still the undercurrent about the discussion of Emmett Till. Monuments in the state to remember Till are repeatedly attacked by vandals. The ongoing fight to memorialize Till's story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB, gpbnews.org, and on the GPB apps. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. On one of the most consequential days in Georgia politics, certainly in my 35 years of covering politics here, and I bet you that the people on this panel today would would have similar feelings. Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, of course, is with us today. Thank goodness. Back. We've missed you. Theron Johnson, Paramount Consulting, is in the studio. Jackie Cushman, promoting her book shamelessly one more time. Our Broken America. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Out September 17th. Um, and we're welcoming now Sarah Riggs Amico, who um, is, has now announced her candidacy for the U.S. Senate, uh, presumably running against David Perdue. That's correct. You just made that announcement formally yesterday. And um, so we would already had you on the schedule. So we want to spend a few minutes um, talking first, and then we'll get everybody else in here. Because here's the question that we've been, or or certainly Kevin and I have been debating. If there are now two open, or there's now an open Senate seat, Johnny Isaacson seat, and a race against David Perdue, I think it's generally acknowledged that Perdue's going to be a tough, tough candidate to beat um, better favorability ratings than either the president or the governor typically in the polling, although we haven't seen polls for a while. Why choose to run against him rather than the open seat? And you've already indicated you're running against Purdue. I have. I fully intend to stay in the race against David Purdue. And look, for me, it's not about what races are on the table and how to make the you know most optimal political cal- calculation. For me, this is about holding David Purdue accountable for the places where I feel like he hasn't done his job. Um, I worry that working families all over this state feel like they're doing everything they're supposed to, and they're falling further and further behind. This is the conversation I want to have. This is the conversation about economic security that I think Georgia needs to have. And I think it needs to be had between two people who both have private sector experience and can talk about what it's like to create jobs in this economy. Theron, you're the political consultant at the table today. Um, if you, if, if Sir Amico was your client, do you think the Purdue race is a, is a better choice f- f- in general? Without regard to what she just said is her rationale, in general, which race would you rather see your client in? Well, for those of us who know Sarah very well, she's authentic, and she's not the per- type of person that will change her course because something um, unbeknownst to her and not in her control happened. I think the thing that I would tell her, and I'll tell her now, is do whatever you feel that's best for you and your family. And I think in Sarah's heart of hearts, uh, she's going to use her statewide name recognition. She ran as a newcomer and lieutenant governor, so I think she knows that she has a brand uh, that I think fits perfectly as she goes up against David Perdue. 
Um, had she probably waited a day longer, I think she still would have made the same decision. Because, Is that right? Yeah, because absolutely. Yeah, because of those of us who who know Sarah and I and I bragged on her before. Is that, you know, when you sit down and you have a conversation with her, you instantly know that this is a woman who deeply, deeply cares about uh, people. And she deeply, deeply cares about her employees. And she tells this story about how she took this trucking company over. And, and, and the thing that she focuses on most is not just the revenue, but she focuses on the people um, that she insured with the health care. So, Are you sure you haven't signed up on this campaign? No, no. You can you can tell her. <laughs> she hadn't signed me up and, uh, and none of that. So, but, but, but we did get to know, the full disclosure, we did get to know each other very well um, when she ran for lieutenant governor. So I know that, it, and we're going to we'll come back to the Johnny Isaacson uh, story because that's going to dominate m- most of the rest of the show. But I do know that yesterday when we talked about your race with Mary Margaret Oliver uh, and Mark Roundtree, the Republican who runs Landmark Consult- uh, uh, Communications, um, and Mary Margaret, of course, is already in Teresa Tomlinson's camp. So I am aware of the fact that your campaign thought you didn't get very fair treatment on the program yesterday. And one of the things that I understand that you were uh, upset about, but it is an issue in the race, is the bankruptcy of your company and the the debt that you're dealing with. So tell me where, when we talked about that yesterday, we, in your opinion, really went off the rails. You know, we launched our campaign yesterday, so I have to be honest. Um, I, I know that there was a perception that it wasn't equally balanced coverage, yeah. but I wasn't personally offended by anything. In fact, uh, as Theron and Kevin know, and, and I think you've probably seen on the campaign trail as well, uh, I'm nothing if not pretty transparent with folks. You know, this trade war has pushed my business to the brink of extinction. And we started with about 120 employees in 2008. But we now provide paychecks for more than 3,000 people, and not just a paycheck, but fully funded health care insurance. We protect our collective bargaining rights for our union. And we were caught in the middle of a trade war and a coming pension crisis that has become so urgent. John Boehner and Joe Crowley are writing a bipartisan op-ed about how to deal with the potential collapse of multi-employer pension plans across this country. So you are you, in fact, is, is your pension plan it, it, perhaps as much as $2 billion in the hole? Yeah, you know, our company is not small, but it's not huge. We're about $600 million in revenue. So um, that our pension exposure in the central state's pension plan has grown in the last two years from $1.2 billion to almost $2 billion. And it would have eventually put us out of business. So I'm very proud to say we came up with a restructuring that was pre-negotiated. Uh, unfortunately, did have to go through a Chapter 11 filing, but it saved all 3,000 jobs, including mine, by the way, without a single wage concession or health care benefit. Well, one of the things I, I know Kevin Weston, but Jackie, I do want to throw one thing in. One of the things we did talk about yesterday when we discussed her formal entrance in the race is the fact that we have history now of people who have run with significant financial problems. Nathan Deal, of course, was in really having problems that were being investigated at the time he ran for governor. Stacey Abrams dealt with her debt. Um, and, And so far, voters don't seem to have punished people uh, candidates, at least in our contemporary uh, uh, setting, uh, for their financial problems. Well, I think, I mean, again, she's, you've been very transparent about this. You've talked openly about what, you know, what's happened and what you're doing and why you did it, which I think is always incredibly important. And I think voters understand that um, that things happen if you deal with them the right way. I do think that they're given, and I'm not going to say a pass, but they're they're understanding. And quite frankly, for a lot of people, um, if they see candidates that have gone through things that they have had to deal with or that their employers have had to deal with, it does make them understand that they understand where they're coming from. I mean, I worked, um, my background is finance, and I worked in a $3 billion um, company, and I, I understand that you sometimes you have to go through tough times to make things work in the long run. And I do think that private sector experience is important. Kevin? Uh, I just wanted to ask you this, Sarah. So I know you're going you know, to be in a primary w- with Teresa Thomason and Ted Terry, the only person in the primary who doesn't have T at the beginning of both their na- uh, first and last name. But that aside a for a moment. <laughs> yeah. um, but, <laughs> this is why he's the boss. Yeah, but, but assuming for a second that, that you come out you know, ahead in that primary, we were talking earlier about the, the Senate candidates almost being a ticket as Democrats. So question one is, would you prefer that maybe one of the other candidates think about running for the open seat? Well, we should make it clear that now you are the third. Ted, Terry, and Teresa Tomlinson have said the same thing you have. They are absolutely running 
against right. David Perdue. So nothing's changed. But so go let's ahead. say if all you're going to stay in this race, who would you like to run for the open seat on your ticket as we as we talked about it? Look, I'm not sure who's going to jump into that other seat. Um, what I do know is that this changes everything nationally for the state of Georgia. What we tried to say, you know, I traveled through 150 counties in about 10 months last year. And when Stacy and I traveled around the state, we were telling people Georgia is ready for this moment. Georgia is ready to become a state that's in play nationally. And at the time, I'm not sure people believed us. But by having two Senate seats out of a possible three or four that are needed to flip control of the U.S. Senate right here in Georgia on the ticket next November, this changes the dynamic. This may well be the most important state in the country when it comes to control of the U.S. Senate yeah, next Sarah, year. You've, Sarah, you've kind of said this, but let's be very specific. It, the, Purdue is going to be tough. As an individual, if it's just the, the David Purdue Senate seat that's in play, he's going to be very, very tough. But now that you've added another Senate race, suddenly... It changes the dynamic in terms of what Democrats may hope to accomplish, doesn't it? Yeah, and and, and, uh, and I'll put back on my consultant hat. I think that if I were advising Sarah or Ted or Ter- Teresa, I would tell you there's no way you can say that you're going to go and run for the other seat for two reasons. One, your donors and your supporters would be like, why haven't I given them all this money or what do I plan to support their campaign? Oh, good and point. Run. And then the right. second thing is you really don't truly know who you're going to be running against. Yeah. I mean, the Republicans may pick someone that may have just as much money as David Perdue. They may pick a woman. We talked about that. Or they may pick someone that that we never even thought about. And so I think the unique thing for Democrats is, is that, to Sarah's point, we realized, based on the, ca- the coordinated campaign efforts last time, that Georgia is a battleground state, and you can win here, and you can turn Georgia blue again. The challenge is going to be is who's going to come along. And I, and I call out Nakima Williams, who's the party chair, who's now in a very tough position because you've got to now control all these different names and candidates that are going to be out there. I do believe that Democrats have been successful in Georgia when you put together the right ticket that can activate the right coalition. Yeah. And so while Sarah probably can't say that right now as a Democratic strategist, I hope that people who are in the race right now and those who will enter will have an open open and honest conversation about how the quote-unquote ticket looks to activate those coalitions. Right, because remember, I mentioned this earlier, but but for the open, for Isaacson's seat, when the when it happens, the, it'll be one race w- with no Republican or Democrat in terms of you're not voting for one or the other, right? So his point, so Theron's point is, if you have 12 Democrats running, right, and it, because there is no primary in that in that particular race, it can create a problem. Now, Democrats have been historically very, very good, unlike Republicans, because every time we have Republicans have a primary, everybody in the, everybody you haven't wins. been paying attention to this presidential oh thing, have yeah. you? Everybody, yeah. <laughs> well, no, historically, um, have a very good. They are very good about that, and they make sure. They have one person, to your point, that's kind of the standard bearer for the Democratic Party, which would get them in a better position to grab one of those two slots for the runoff. Yeah, and, and let me say this, Bill, and, and this is just advice to uh, the folks who are thinking about running and running. To Jackie's point, we may have someone enter this race and that's sort of not a traditional candidate like Sarah did that focuses just on one issue. And let's just hypothetically say that issue is climate change or that issue is gun safety and gun control. This can elevate conversations and drive out people to either party that historically don't vote. Sarah, you're nodding. Yeah, Yeah, look, all of these things change the dynamic. But what I love about this is that there are some things that don't change. Georgia families still need affordable access to health care. Georgia families still want to see bipartisan work on infrastructure investment. Georgia families still want to know that economic security is available to their family. And what I love about it is I think Democrats win on those issues. And what we have now with two Senate rates, races in play is a much bigger stage and a lot more spotlight on a place that I think plays to our strengths. So let me, you know, I th- well, you may or may not know, but people who listen to the show regularly know that there are times when, because I've got this great team of, of producers, uh, Tom Faust and Robert Jimison in there, things play out in real time on this show sometimes. And yesterday, in the middle of our show, uh, talking about you, Ted Terry uh, set out his tweet in which he uh, showed the financial disclosure uh, report that showed that you'd given Mitt Romney a pretty good amount of money when he was running for president uh, against uh, President Obama. Well, that's a fairly potent weapon, I would think, if 
uh, people uh, pay attention to that sort of thing. So how are you going to deal with that? Oh, look, same way we did last year and the same way I talked about earlier, transparency. Look, I'm not a lifelong Democrat, and I've been very upfront with voters about yeah. that. Yep. I always voted with the party that I thought built the most economic opportunity and jobs. And look, if you compare the Bush to Obama to now the Trump economies, I think that's eliminated any doubt that the best party to look out for your family's economic security is the Democrats. So I've been very transparent. I noticed he didn't post all of the donations I've made to Democrats over the years, <laughs> well, of course which I thought he didn't. was funny. Oh, come on. I noticed he also didn't post that Barack Obama endorsement I got last year. <laughs> He's a I'm sure. Uh, I will point out, Kevin, that uh, at the same time, uh, we had uh, supporters of Teresa Tomlinson upset because I mentioned that years ago she had been a Republican. And so you can't win in this game. You just Kevin. can't keep people happy, Bill. Uh, <laughs> I can attest to that, whether it's this show or the newspaper. Yeah, but, that was, by uh, the way, th- like 30 years ago. Right. But nevertheless, people are going to eat. That's the sort of stuff Theron knows. This is what people use in campaigns. And listen, opposition <laughs> research is paramount on these campaigns. And I think that the one good thing about this show, Bill, and it's a testament to your leadership, is to have these conversations going on and have it a statewide show where people all across the Georgia can listen. But they obviously give Sarah the opportunity to come in here uh, and give her equal time is, again, a testament to, to what you're doing. Now, I may ask Sarah a quick question sure. as well. So, so Sarah, you know, you've, you've run statewide before for lieutenant governor. And as you mentioned, you went to 150 counties. I would say what would be the one thing that you have already kind of told your team, hey, guys, I've been out here in this sort of deep cold water before around the state of Georgia. What is the one thing that you want to do differently this time that you felt like maybe you didn't have enough time to do um, when you're running for lieutenant governor or you didn't know before you started running? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, as a down-ballot candidate, you just don't have the same megaphone that you need to share your message. And I I think for us, getting the resources to effectively compete in this race is critical, not just from a donor base, but from the national organizations, from the national party who will come in now up into and including the presidential candidate, I think will have to contest and invest in Georgia. Um, So that's definitely going to be one major difference from last Last year, but I can tell you the thing I wouldn't change, which is showing up. I think being in these communities where we might have been the first statewide Democratic candidate they'd seen in a generation, we need to do that every year, not just in election years, and have those conversations. Use the two ears and one mouth you have in the correct proportions to hear what people are worried about. Jackie, you just sort of gave Sarah a look like you thought what she's saying made sense. Oh. But let's face it, she's not going to be your candidate in 2020. No, but, I mean, I, I, I not, yet. No. not yet. Not yet. I like that. Good. Um, no, but I mean, she's exactly right. When you, when, you run a, when you run for a statewide race, you need to visit the whole state. I mean, well, this, this Sam not, Olin, for, for both For both Sam. sides. Sam Sam Olins, who will be here on Friday, I can't wait to hear what he has to say about Johnny Isaacson. He he knew that. He spent more time in South Georgia, I think, than anybody, any candidate for statewide office before him. Absolutely. You need to visit the entire state. And we we have to remember this. I mean, this is a very dynamic state, but it's a very diverse state, not only in geographic areas and industries, but how people live. And the world is very different from the urban, different from suburban. And until you're exactly right, until you go out and talk to people and understand where they come from and what is important to them, you really can't represent them correctly. All right. Uh, we got to get our final break of the show in. Uh, Sarah Riggs and Miko, we're really grateful to you uh, for coming in today. Sorry if you felt a little beaten up. No, well, not no, at all. Your campaign Look, felt a little for, beaten right? up. Um, and we wish you well in this race. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this uh, this new dynamic uh, affects all of you running. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, we got to take our final break of the show. We come back, we got a few more things I want to get on the page. Let's talk about the story that there's no question the Kemp administration is happy, was kicked off the front page because of Johnny Isaacs' announcement. We'll do that in a minute. I'm Taylor Gann, GPB's Morning Edition producer. I've had the chance to cover the full spectrum of sports in Georgia, including women's basketball, the NCAA National Championship, and Atlanta United, who won the city's first pro championship since 1995. All different people all come together in these games, and it really just represents all of Atlanta. And I think it means a lot to the entire city to have something like this. We bring you the latest on sports right here on GPB.
On the next Fresh Air, our Emmy week continues with two Emmy nominees from the Netflix series When They See Us. It's about the wrongful conviction of the Central Park Five. We'll hear from Ava DuVernay, who produced, directed, and co-wrote the series, and Michael K. Williams, who co-stars as the father of one of the boys. The series is nominated for 16 Emmys. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. All right. Um, look, let me say we, we still have so much more to talk about with Johnny Isaacson. And Friday, we're going to devote a good portion of the show to uh, looking at, at his public uh, career and uh, talking again about next steps, what we expect to happen. But there was some other big news uh, that happened overnight. I said before the break, I, I happened to talk to somebody in the Kemp administration this morning and said, well, uh, you may not be happy about Isaacson, but you got to be relieved that at least he's kicking uh, sterogenics off the front page during the break. Kevin Riley said, "Not so fast." <laughs> well, I mean, it's a big story, and we're gonna we're staying on it at the newspaper. And let's make clear what what is the latest development. Would you like to tell everybody about that, well, and then we'll I mean, talk about state it? State regular regulators have have came and did an emergency inspection. Yeah, two days ago, uh, uh, Governor Kemp said they're meeting standards. Uh, there's no reason for us to take action against them. And then it was revealed uh, that they had had a a leak, and they had to evacuate the plant. The ethylene oxide, which is a toxic substance, may still have been within standards, federal standards, but they felt it was significant enough to evacuate the plant. And now EPD is back in there investigating all over again, right? Right. And part of the reason they went there is that our reporter called EPD yeah. and said, hey, we want to get a comment from you on this. And it sounds a little bit like maybe that's how they found out. Yeah, ja- yeah, that's right. Jackie, this is really distressing news. It, this is. But once again, I want to I I thank the AJC for their reporting, because this is exactly why we need good reporters to dig into things and see what's happening. Um, she this- is not her father's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we need good reporting, especially at the local level. It's, it's really, really important. Uh, obviously, this uh, th- they should have known about it. So th- there is already a set investigation to what's happening. I think we're kind of in this, we know it's bad. We don't know how bad it is. And we have to wait and see what happens with the investigation. And I'm sure the AJC's going to be on But one of, of the it. things there, and it's the, one of the worst things about this is they had already had this um, leak and the evacuation when they met with Governor Kemp, and they didn't tell him that this had happened. Yeah, t- two things I want to point out here. First, I want to commend uh, the commissioner, Commissioner Ott, who represents the area there, also State Senator Jen Jordan, and other local elected officials who really put the pressure on sterogenics and to force them to, with the governor's support, have an open community meeting. And, and I think that, you know, the governor deserves the credit for that, but I want to commend them as well. But what really is coming out now, Bill, to your point, remember when this first came out, Governor Kent wasn't quick to rush to judgment. I know from talking to certain folks that have been close to the situation that he met with them. He truly gave them the benefit of the doubt and kind of came out and said, hey, while we do need independent monitoring, I feel that they've are doing everything they possibly can. But then to come back and see that they had this leak and not to disclose it with the governor, the governor was put in a very awkward situation to basically come back and sort of go into CYA mode and say, hey, let's put this investigation forward. And so what you've done now is you've not only broken the public trust, which they didn't have for the lack of transparency, you now are basically not being totally truthful and transparent with the the state entity that has been there to try to help you get through the situation. And so this is an outrage for the people who are breathing this air that live near and around this, this plant. And as a Georgian, as a person who lives in a metro area, I'm terrified because now I don't know who to believe. Yeah. I don't know what are they truly doing what they're supposed to do around reporting. But I do want to commend this governor and those other local elected officials for staying uh, on the course and holding this company accountable. But, yeah, and I, and I can't say, I mean, Thayer made a really good point. Um, the fact that, that I do believe that, that uh, Governor Kemp went in there with good good faith and tried to work through it. And since they were not truthful with him, my guess is he is going to follow up, make sure it's followed up in well, yeah, very, there very, are, very can, detailed can, way. Because um, he is not, that is not, you know, he, he really wants to, he, he believes people. He has a good faith. He's going to assume you're working on good faith. But if you break that good faith, he's going to assume that you're no longer working on good faith. So and they're going to regret that. I apologize. I didn't. 
I didn't mean to interrupt. Kevin, uh, what we're still waiting for, though, is there have been demands by people like Senator Jordan to shut this place down, in, at least temporarily. In Barrington, Illinois, where Sterigenics has a plant, the governor of Illinois did shut the plant down. Uh, so I think there's going to be renewed energy around this notion that perhaps they should shut them down. Right. And, and I know that on this show we talk about politics, but I don't want us to lose sight of an important thing. I mean, this is being pushed and raised by average citizens. Yeah. I mean, people who live there who really have a right to expect more from their government and from their leaders in their community. They, we all have to be able to count on a government that will keep an eye yeah. on a company that's dealing with it, dangerous it, material. Well, it's an evolving story. Uh, as we run out of time, I don't want to miss one other quick point here, Kevin Riley. You may be the editor of the AJC, but every now and then you play investigative journalist. And you told me an interesting story that you've got sources that you want to remain, remain anonymous. But one of the things people have been talking about is that, you know, the state's looking at gambling again. Sports betting seems to be uh, a big part of what they might turn to. And there's a lot of excitement around the fact they were going to have a big meeting at SunTrust Park, a big committee meeting. And that suggested people were looking at this. Kevin? What have you learned about that? Well, I, I do think there are some questions about whether this meeting is really set up. But, but um, I think it's important to remember this. when the, There was mention of the sports franchises in town being interested in, in sports betting. And what I think is important to know is when we think about sports betting, like we're talking about Jackie putting $100 down on the Falcons winning by seven, right? I mean, that's kind of but, – but what's really going on in that world is what they call micro – gambling or micro gaming and um, it would allow people to be very engaged with the game where if Bill and I are sitting at the Braves game we might be able to place a bet on whether the guy batting now is going to hit a home run yeah and the, yeah. the, the, the reason sports franchises are interested in it is a they would like to see gambling regulated because they're very worried about illegal activity and its potential impact on the game but they're after fan engagement and they think this version of gambling, can be more easily passed as a simple game under current law as opposed to a but constitutional Jackie, amendment. Jackie, we're still going to have the the you know the Faith and Freedom Coalition is going to come down like a ton of bricks on legislators if they try to do any of this you know legalize any form of gambling in the state. Isn't it still an outside chance we'll get it to happen? Well, I, th- I think um, uh, when you say gambling overall, I would say yes, but I think it's I had not heard that. So thank you for that new information about the the way you can turn it into micro gambling. And I do think there's a way in which to I mean the other thing is quite frankly is I know that we're interested in looking at new ways of revenue, right? So if you can think of a way to, 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 to package it and to put it in a way in which it's not, it's in a certain area, it might be passable. I think it depends on how it's put forth. Theron, things have changed. We no longer have the MGM Grand and others. Well, you, got, you did, work for them, the right? Yep. Uh, but it's changed. There's now, with the last minute we have here, the whole lobbying scene around this has changed dramatically, hasn't it? It, it has, but it hasn't, because what you had when I was um, in the position to represent MGM as a lobbyist, uh, it was just dominating the AJC. It was dominating. They hired a bunch of us. It's still percolating. It's still some lobbyists that are out there that are repping some of these big casino companies. But before we wrap, I want to give a big shout-out yeah. to Speaker David Ralston, who you know um, I, I call balls and strikes with him. Yeah. I mean, he was the one that sort of said, okay, if we're looking at ways to generate new revenue, respecting the governor's um, request for cuts, yeah. this may be an alternative yeah. Exactly. Way to He's actually encouraged. All right. The, the really last word I'd like to mention, and I, I certainly think, Theron, you'll know this. Robbie Rivers died. Mm-hmm. Robbie Rivers was the clerk of the Georgia House for many years. He was appointed by Tom Murphy when, when Tom was Speaker of the House. And you couldn't have asked for a kinder, uh, more helpful, lovely person than Robbie. And there are an awful lot of us who've spent years at the Capitol who have tur- who turned to Robbie to help us get something done. And he was n- never, ever failed to do his best to make everybody get what they wanted. So I just wanted to say very yeah. quickly, Robbie, we're going to miss you down R- there. Robbie Rivers is definitely going to be my winner. Um, he helped out so many of us as lobbyists. There's not a legislator who... Went yeah. down at it. He did not help. And if you look at the tribute that he received from the governor, speaker, and others, yep. he's definitely going to be missed. We're thinking about you, Robbie. That's it for us today. We're going to be back on Friday at 2 o'clock. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you. <laughs>